think I'm gonna have to take off my group mask. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I can't like be that. I can't be the only one in the world who cried when Groot pulled oh, that come move. Come on, I end. bawled. You bawled too. Okay, totally, good. dude. Groot. Yeah. I was like, where's this going? Because you know, I don't read comics, so I you know, I watch movies like all of these movies are new to me, you know? Right. X-Men when I watch it, Guardians of the Galaxy. I, I don't know anything about this stuff before I get into it. So I'm like, where's this tree character going, you know? <laughs> He's cool, but I had no idea where it was going. Before I know it, I'm like Team Groot You're like, for the rest it. of my life. Yeah! <laughs> that guy's like my dude. He's yeah. like my spirit, you know? Groot's I'm badass. all about Groot. Yeah, man. Ugh. Groot of the Speak- Earth. So you're a comic, you know. I never got into the comics. It's our 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 guest Spencer is a big fantasy guy. We didn't get into it too much in the interview, but he, he's real into Game of Thrones. Had a uh, lots of lots to talk about about comics and comic movies. Well, we might has, have to have him on again. You yeah, know? but we didn't even talk about the fact that he has a podcast about yeah. Game of Thrones, right? Yeah, Citadel Drop... Well, it's not anymore since it's right. now defunct, but uh, yeah, the last... I think it was the last season of Game of Thrones, he had a podcast called Citadel Dropouts that basically was like a parallel for what was going on in Game of Thrones and how it, you know, goes into the right. world. It was it was pretty interesting. I mean, I listened just simply for the Game of Thrones analysis from, from someone I know, Uh because, you know, I'd usually walk away from episodes just being like, I, I don't know. I don't know what just happened. <laughs> like, it was cool. A bunch of people died. Uh, but I know there's more to this, you know? <laughs> yeah. I have that problem, Brad. I think I'm like a... Well, Game of Thrones, dude, is tough. To, there's just so many characters and so many politics. I'm such it. a casual observer of certain kinds of entertainment that my nerd friends, I'm just always bumming out. It literally just happened last night. I go into a thread of my friends... uh talking about that show Space Force. And, and you know, they're all like, yeah, horrible, meh, piece of shit, this, you know, like, this is the reason, this is the reason. And I couldn't sleep last weekend, and I binged the thing. I thought it was fun. Right. You know, like, right. like I don't know, I had no problems with it. I liked the first three Star Wars when they came out, and then the other ones came out, and I'm like, these are cool. Jar Jar Banks is funny. I don't care. <laughs> and then Lord of the Rings came. To, I'm like, that's even better because I read those books. I even I had a pitch for a shirt. I was going to make a shirt years ago that just said all nine, which meant all six Star Wars and all three Lord of the Rings. <laughs> you know, I'm into all of them. Sorry. I got nothing <laughs> bad to say. They're all fun because it's fucking fantasy and it's mostly made for kids. Like, right. just re- you know, relax, guys. It's what happens when people take things too seriously, even a movie. Well, speaking of which... <laughs> speaking of getting serious? Speaking of getting way too serious. Well, let's make let's keep this intro a little lighter, because as you know, I've been pining on myself about the intro I made to the... We made to the Milo Alkerman from Descendants episode, where I tried to make some points and tried to get into something that honestly... I was still a little too emotional and a little too hot and didn't really understand where my head was even at. And, you know, I got to understand that position, like, uh, you know, and just be a little more, just be a little smarter about what I need, need to say and what I want to say, you know? But you're right. We're, you know, I'm not fucking Dan Rather it's over here. It's from the heart, know? dude. I think people I know. know that. 
Well, they should also know that I'm the type of person who can stew on something for a week and that, feel really bad about myself. So. <laughs> that's really what it's all about. That's what it's all about. <laughs> yeah. But it was great to have Spencer on. I mean, you know, I know this isn't exactly what he covers or his own experience since, you know, uh, doesn't really, you know, obviously. Um, but... I wanted to have someone on that we could at least open the floor for some of the things happening and try to make sense of some of the political and protest landscape that we're dealing with right now. So it was nice to have him on. It was nice to talk about. For some background, I know it sounded like Spencer and I were familiar when we went into this interview, and it's because we are. So my aunt was his mother's best friend since childhood. Uh, my aunt lived out in California when I was growing up, so I didn't, I kind of, I never met Spencer, but I had always heard about Spence, who was like, who was like <laughs> Betty's son, who was into punk rock and was in like a ska band or something right. in high school. And I always got like wind of this guy Spence and we need to meet at some point. And there was always this like, you know, uh, you know, cloud, like I always knew this guy was around, but I didn't know him. And then you know, randomly, you know, I never went to Rutgers, but because of friends and stuff like that, I ended up uh, being a paginator and then the night production manager at the newspaper there called the Daily Targum. And it turned out at somewhere around the same time, Spencer was a young punk rocker at Rutgers, you know, getting into journalism. And he became a writer for the Daily Targum and was the Metro editor, I believe, towards the end when we left. So he was like the New Brunswick City editor. Uh, and as I read in the end of the podcast, he was notorious for writing these like absolutely hilarious police blotters where he would just take, you know, a really innocuous story and just give it give it a lot of flavor. I, I, you know, I hope you keep that into the podcast. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, you know, we reconnected there. And then, um, and then we stayed in touch. And then when Gaslight started touring and we go down to DC, I remember we played the black cat and Spencer came out. Um, I think he was at the new Republic then maybe down in DC and yeah, and just have stayed, you know, in general touch over the years. So it's kind of an interesting history with the two of us. Um, but Spencer's like a real deal, old school Brooklyn guy, you know, um, has hardcore kid. Oh, yeah, hardcore punk kid, you know, a lot to say and uh, has been head first into, you know, like there were some things, you know, like 10 years ago where I'm like, holy shit, Spencer's part of this like Edward Snowden thing. Oh, my God. Like, <laughs> right. and then it's like, holy shit, Spencer's part of this like Valerie Plame affair and like all this like really like deep right. national security kind of stuff where I'm like, oh, man, like he's on he's point, in it. man. He's doing the thing. <laughs> he's doing the thing. So. You know, that's how it started, and that was our connection, and I'm super glad he gave us the time to come on. It yeah. was a late-night interview. Uh, yeah, was that our latest ever? Yeah, Sunday night interview, man. Bunch of dads, <laughs> man. Bunch of dads had to put the kids to bed and do it. So, since we were so long- long-winded last week, why don't we just uh, why don't we rip into this one? Let's do it. So, what's going on, man? Where are you at right now? Uh, I'm at home in Brooklyn. Good. I'm in uh, the part of my of my place where I write my book. Ah, nice. 
Well, I did a journey you? to Brooklyn today. We did, took a bike trip uh, to Red Hook, a neighborhood that I love and am positive I completely missed the opportunity to get into. Red Hook is cool. What did you see as you rolled around? Um, it's, I mean, it's like the thing I love about Red Hook. It's like a little tiny small town, you know. Um, but there was a rally, a pretty substantial rally uh, that went through while we were there. Um, I, I would argue that Red Hook is maybe the most utilitarian part of New York. Mm. Like, I do feel like there is a lot of clever people making very interesting shit out of very old stuff in Red <laughs> Hook. You it's, know? it's like what Williamsburg wishes it was. Is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah. kind of. Oh, it's I like, agree. It's, That's what I love about it. Because a lot, most of those people have been there since, like, before Hurricane Sandy, you know? Um yeah. For anyone that doesn't know, I mean, it's a part of New York that you could potentially go and just be like, oh, why is there a 1930s fishing boat embedded into the third floor of that building? <laughs> like, why did that why are there tr- Why are there trolley tracks in the street? Right. Well, yeah. it's, it's yeah. also very difficult to get to. Um, it doesn't really have a good – well, there's no subway or anything. And it's yeah. only no. recently got the ferry, so it was, it was like – yeah, it was kind of an outpost for a long time. And as a result, it has – Still is thriving man. arts community. Yeah, but I, feel I, I was like working people- at a I was working at a wood shop out in Red Hook. You know, pretty close to the water for for a year or two there. And you know, at first, you know, I'm looking on the MTA sites and this, and I'm like, oh, you know, like there's this train, and then maybe like you know, 25 minute walk, or like maybe you hit the bus <laughs> here, and then like literally, Mister Fucking New Jersey. Within two weeks, I was exclusively driving to yeah. Red Hook. Yeah, because I'm like this sucks. Well, yeah, you would have to. It would take it forever, dude. Yeah, but anyway, so Spencer, your what's your uh, what's your workspace like? Like how you know you got a kid now, a family. How, how do you how do you set up to actually like focus in the house? This is a ongoing problem for me. If I showed you a picture of the room I'm in, you would think I was ready to murder someone. <laughs> Uh, I'm lucky enough to live in the house in Flatbush, uh, that, uh, my mother, uh, raised me in. Uh, so when she passed away, it passed to me. So I'm an extremely, extremely lucky person. Um, I get to say that my daughter will grow up where I grew up and where, uh, her grandmother, who she never got to meet, um, looms as a very large presence. And I am in, uh, a quiet, it's, as ideal and uh, a quarantine uh, situation as could be, right? <laughs> like, I'm I'm one of very few people who doesn't hurt for space. Mm, so right. I've got uh, the room that was my bedroom when I was uh, when I was a very little kid. Uh, it has notes for my forthcoming book. Uh, taped, literally taped all over the walls, written in Sharpie <laughs> on the backs of comic book boards. Yes. <laughs> so, like, this is me storyboarding. And inside the room, this is where, over the last three months, I've just, like, gone to do my day job reporting for the Daily Beast on, you know, general civilizational collapse, it seems. And yes. at any moment, like, my daughter... Uh, who's nearly five will come bounding in here, jump on the bed that's still in here for guests, uh, play with uh, the various yoga balls 
that have migrated uh, bird-like into this room. Um, usually for disuse, for for like disuse at this point. Um, but gotcha. now, like, I will like hang up on a phone call, like finish up a phone call for a story, and if she's just like going insane, just be like, "All right, we're gonna throw yoga balls at one another and see whose bounce is better." <laughs> and like that that's like, just yeah. It's it's super fun. It's it's also like an acceptable way to get like the irritation you can feel uh, at being cooped up with a five year old uh, out in a way that she will find extremely fun. I mean, have you ever made the mistake like just you know you're working on a story and you're just like, what do you mean Antifa's a terrorist organization? You just throw the yoga ball just a little too hard at her. Like, what's been so great about it is. Uh, if anything has been great about this terrible, terrible circumstance, and by great I mean va- like vaguely less terrible, right. is that everyone you're on the phone with uh, like understands if suddenly yeah. you have to say, like, I'm on the phone, shut the fuck up. I was on a phone call. Uh, so, like, a whole lot of, like, government agencies, like, for understandable reasons, like, are now, like, doing press briefings remotely. So, right, right. like, I'm on a conference call uh, w- that the the Pentagon is holding the day <laughs> after the Lafayette Square attack, uh, right. where the Pentagon establishment has to explain itself as well, like why the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the Secretary of Defense, the chairman wearing combat fatigues, his combat uniform, right. not his yeah. dress uniform, like, yeah. walks through this square that has been violently cleared of peaceful protesters with the National Guard in the background uh, backing up the park police for a Trump photo op. And as, like, I get finally into this call, I have to, like, loudly tell that, like, I can't talk right now. Like, you need to, like, just solve (laughs) your problems and then immediately get, like, can someone mute their phone? Oh, truly is a brave new world, isn't it? One I mean, one, I- one friend of mine uh, from the Pentagon press corps um, who, like, knows the name of my daughter, like, immediately right. emailed. Like, I saw, like, he didn't even text. Like, he just emailed me. He was like, was that you on the phone? <laughs> <laughs> um, like, look, I'm it, trying. All right? Yeah. I'm trying. You're doing your best, man. Uh, it is a beautiful house, though. I'm glad. I'm glad you have the space. Um, what What was your experience with the uh, with the coronavirus? Like, when did you, um, you know, learn that it was a a real thing and something that needed to be taken seriously? And then how did how how did that start? You know, playing out in your in your day to day life. I'm sure you had a little insight before the 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 normal. Uh, pedestrian did um no if i'm honest like i tend to like hyper focus on what i'm doing to the point where if i don't see it as immediately connected to like everything i've got to do to like halfway competently cover my beat and like especially now at a time when i'm also writing a book right like i tend to to just sort of like be resistant uh, to accepting that, like, I need to pay attention to this. Right. And that's basically a way of, like, admitting I'm I'm kind of dumb. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, there really is only, like, so much I can process. But thankfully, my wife is not. And around 
I guess like mid February, which is like crucially, crucially. No, I guess it like it. Eh, no, probably like probably like 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 early to mid February. She started like buying like you know a lot of wa- a lot of bottled water. Whoa, uh, she's really paper towels. Like she, I mean, like she's very good at like reading like disaster stories, right? Um, so she she was pretty prepared, but it was un- it was not really until like the end of that month, and this is like despite incredible work on this being done by colleagues of mine, in particular a colleague named Olivia Messer, um, that like it like sunk into me that like no like stop everything you're doing like this is. Like, this is a tier one emergency. And I luckily had arranged to take, like, what was it, the first week in um, March off. Okay. To just, like, give myself some time uh, to just, like, stop what I was doing for my day job and and write the book. And, like, at that point, both me and my wife were just like, this, we're just going to stay home for a long time. And, like, it was the next week that um, I think the curfew started. Um, Well, that's why I was thinking that she was so on point because I think everybody else was in February. Nobody was taking it seriously at all here. um, One of my good friends as well, uh, the cartoonist Matt Bores, um, like saw it way earlier uh, than I did. And like in conversations with him and some other friends uh, who are like also you know, tend to be hyper-focused on, on what they write about, uh, was just like, this is a real thing. And like, we ought to talk about it and, you know, figure out like who and what it's dealing with it and how, you know, we need to change, uh, what we're doing in response to it. Right. I mean, what's it been like for you guys? Uh, well, I, I was similar in the fact that I was, I was hitting Costco and stuff towards the end of February as well. Uh, I do, especially now with kids, lean towards just over-preparedness. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. the last thing I want to be, not not viewed on the outside, but I view myself, is like, you know, you can't control the uncontrollable, and I realize that, but I would like to manage the variables before that to just give ourselves the best chance. So, you know, I'm not like uh, filling bunkers and things like that. But if it, there is something like that, I, I do take it seriously quickly. And then, you know, but there's also a part of me that's just like, hey, you're a paranoid guy. This stuff happens a lot. You don't want to, you know, concern yourself to the point that your well-being's not good. But there's a, a guy who lives on my block in Jersey City who <laughs> I don't know exactly what he does. but. Okay. He's involved in disaster response, disaster prep, uh, EMT work. He, he works, you know, he gets contracted by the city when things like this happen. Uh, and I'm like, oh, okay, you you know what's going on. And he, he kind of gave me a heads up pretty early on that he was expecting uh, a major disruption in daily life. And, that, and when was this roughly? Yeah. Uh, towards... Yeah, like towards maybe third week of February, mm-hmm. something like that. Yeah. Um, and he had started already working inside of Jersey City to kind of see what their apparatus was like. 
and and uh, basically consult on it. And he told me that they are just going to deal with it incredibly poorly and they don't even have a choice, basically, that the the system inside is just not built for what's about to come. And he's mm-hmm. really worried about certain communities and this. So uh, he painted sort of a dark picture for me um, that that just made me take it pretty seriously pretty early on. I, I was out of uh, out of the New York area and escaped by, I think, uh, yeah, March, March 9th or 10th. Um, and this must yeah. have hit you really acutely, given, you know, you can't you can't play shows. Yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> um, you know, like it's it's a it's a strange concept that I've essentially just between being a promoter and a musician, I've been completely focused on filling rooms with as many people as possible for like twenty five years. It's pretty much right. been my goal. <laughs> How many can I squeeze in one room? And if it's going well. That means people are sweaty and yelling at each other and in basically like a human pile, you know, yeah. like, like that's what I'm doing my job well. So from, from, from the Elks Lodges to stadiums. Exactly. So, I mean, like, um, so spit yeah, I could sweat, had, Benny. That's what it is. Exactly. That's why your career is spit and sweat, baby. Maybe that's a little it, blood man. now and then. Huh? So, so nothing, <laughs> nothing could have been, nothing could have been more, more different than that. But speaking of which, I, I want to talk about you as a punk rocker, Spencer. Like, okay. I feel like, I feel like you don't, you know, I'm looking into your history. You know, I've never Googled you as much as I had in the last few days and looked into basically how the outside world sees you, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And, and I don't see much of a mention of like, this is an old punk rock guy who's doing this. And I know this. Um, <laughs> so, so, you know, how did how did you go from, you know, the kid in Brooklyn, you know, into into music and, and like what made you actually decide to to really get into this and get into it seriously? Like, was there a turning point for you? There's actually a direct path from punk rock into into journalism. Um, and it's through. Uh, this wasn't so much me, but like a large contingent of my friends um from like mid-90s punk rock uh in new york and new jersey tended to hang out uh with george tab from oh, yeah. uh curious from uh, furious george yeah, and, a, I, um, I and like a ton of other bands like local you know punk rock celebrity um a really good guy and someone who uh wrote for the alternative to the village voice, the New York press. Okay. And I like none of my bands did anything really. Like I had, I had like fun doing that stuff and like, I love playing drums and like haven't played drums in forever. Um, and particularly love the way you play drums. Um, thanks, bud. (laughs) And like I had, it seemed like much more, of, of like something to contribute when I would like do fanzine stuff, either right. uh, for for friends, in particular these friends who were uh, in tight uh, with George, uh, to the point that one of those fanzines was called Supplicant after some 
I don't even remember who, like someone in the scene uh, said that like this crew was uh, George Tabb's teenage supplicants. <laughs> this is also something I think is, you know, worth revisiting at a time not connected to George, but like, you know, now that I'm like a man in my forties or yeah. you know, I'm, I, I, I just had my 40th birthday. So I've been, I've been testing that out, but like, I don't like see the need to hang out with a lot of teenagers. <laughs> right, sure. And like in in uh, in punk rock, a lot of that, particularly at this time, was like really normalized. Yeah, that's um, true. That is true. <laughs> anyway. it's, it's almost like the it was it was you know it was pre-internet. It was when we still needed the stories of our elders. That's right. To carry on, you know, like directly, like we didn't have everything uh, archived and uh, online yet. We. I think we still needed that. We needed to be around strange old men still. That, that's an excellent point. I want to clarify. I'm not implying anything about George. <laughs> well, uh, there are other people, as you know, uh, <laughs> that we could imply quite a lot about from that yes. scene. But moving, yes. along, moving um, along. So George wrote for this weekly paper called New York Press that I absolutely loved. And, like, I did not – I, like, read newspapers as much as, I guess, any – teenager would um sure and like the magazines my mother subscribed to um but like i wasn't like a news junkie or anything like that mm-hmm. um and a lot of the stuff i would read seemed you know either you know corny in a tabloid way or inaccessible in a new york times way right and right. something about like being like a snotty teenager um, and particularly like that kind of snotty teenager, um, that's into punk rock, uh, made me just really attracted to like the tone and the experimentation that New York press would do. Like it hated the village voice. It <laughs> seemed to have like few other like centripetal like forces aligning all of the weird people who were there. Like the guy who edited it. <laughs> Um, and who like, you know, funded it out of his own pocket was like a completely normie, but like clearly out of like step with his like, you know, classes in like classes, um, like political affiliations, uh, okay. like a normie Republican, um, right, okay. for, who was like from Baltimore made money. His name's Russ Smith. Uh, and he came to New York and, um, like then there were just like tremendous like uh like deeply out of the mainstream writers who would write about just whatever they felt like and sometimes it was like mm. mostly essay stuff um sometimes it was columns and you know sometimes it would be pegged to the news so you would have like russ writing about you know whatever annoyed him in the new york times that day with how like they're <laughs> not being you know fair to bob dole with like <laughs> Alan Cabal, uh, this guy who like would talk about selling, as he once put it, uh, pure pharmaceutical methadrine to biker gangs. Oh, <laughs> so like there, yeah. there's like a lot for a lot of people uh, sure. in this paper yeah. at this time. Uh, dude, Drinky Crow, Drinky Crow, that's my memory. Drinky Crow, definitely Tony Millionaire. That shit was so insane. <laughs> When I got to meet, when I got to meet Tony, I kind of flipped because the only time I really knew knew him was from uh, a story um, 
from Mars Bar uh, that I was not there for that friends of mine told me where like Tony was passed out um, on the, on the, on the bar of the late lamented Mars Bar and someone, it might've been George Tab, I forget who, uh, but someone who's like nearby Tony uh, like goes to the Mars Bar bathroom and comes back and says like, I think I got AIDS from using that bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> I've had, I had that feeling. <laughs> and, and, apparent, and apparently, Tony like goes from zero to sixty, like picks himself, like revived up from the bar <laughs> to yell at this person. The AIDS can't crawl up your dick, <laughs> which seems kind of strange because that's like literally how. But otherwise, yeah. <laughs> like not in this circumstance. It's it, so anyway. I was pretty hyped to meet Tony Millionaire. Um, wow. Yeah, <laughs> but basically, like I, uh, um, I tried to get an internship there when I was nineteen and got turned down. And like okay. I bought like a uh, Regis Philbin who wants to be a millionaire like super shiny like shirt tie combination for this interview and just got like immediately rejected. And like, I just like, Oh God, like what's going on? I don't know what I'm doing wrong. And a friend of mine, um, from punk rock, uh, at this point, more of an indie rock guy, a really good guy named Diego, um, was friends with the listings editor, uh, a really amazing person named Lisa Lee King. Um, and she basically, like, once I found out from Diego that he had a connection, I, I like, asked uh, him to communicate a message to her that was just like, do you need me to open your mail? Like, I'll do that. Uh, like, I just want to yeah, yeah. be, like... Just get your foot in the door. Exactly. Just, like, let me do that. And, sure. like, she decided, like, yeah, fuck it. If someone wants to open my mail, like, open my mail. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, I went to New York Press every couple days. Where like, was it? The, um, it was it was really convenient because like I was I was enrolled at Rutgers at the time. Yeah. You can tell I make great life decisions because I'm from New York City, from Brooklyn specifically, and I, I went to Rutgers University uh, because my friends in my band at the time uh, right. were also going to Rutgers, and like yes, I didn't want to yes. be away from those from from, sure. from my from my boys. Um, anyway, uh, it was right on. Um, uh, 7th Avenue between 20, uh, either 28th and 29th Street or 29th and 28th Street. Okay. Uh, or 28th and 27th Street. Uh, 333 7th Avenue, uh, RIP to it, uh, <laughs> on, the four, on the 14th floor. Um, and, like, I, I was just, like, blown. I, I loved being there. It was, it, was, it was so geeky. I was an enormous, enormous fanboy. I didn't know it. I didn't know a thing. Uh, and, like, no one... I quickly learned, like, gives a shit about teaching you anything. <laughs> right. Okay. Like, no one, like, no one's there to mentor, like, right, the college yeah. student who shows up to, like, slavishly open mail for the listings editor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, I was just like, do you want any of these listings typed up? Because I'll do that. Okay. And there's, like, there's a, there's a bullpen uh, nearby where, like, you could just, like, find, like, a free computer. This was also the era when you could smoke. Uh, in the newsroom, yes. this was not this was not legal, but <laughs> they didn't get like this was the attitude that New York Press possessed. Like no one was going to stop uh, Jim Kniffel, like one of the, the the best writers there, who liked to smoke at his desk. No one's going to stop Jim from doing that. And that um, that sounds right about the same time that New York was getting into their 
uh, no smoking campaign anywhere. That was that was in in a similar time, wasn't it? This is a couple years before Bloomberg bans smoking from the bars, right? Okay. Um, but like, you you can't smoke in an office building yeah. anymore. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. that's like, just absolutely not. <laughs> yeah, it's not Mad uh, Men anymore. Yeah, yeah. So like, <laughs> I went to type up listings and like thought I could get to employ a little literary panache. Uh, and, and quickly learned like, no asshole. <laughs> like <laughs> you type the listings, like these are the people who are relying on you, who are relying on this paper to like tell people. Cause again, like the dawn of, of this kind of the internet, there could still be all weeklies. This is like 2000. Um, like these people are going to be like people who eventually like buy small ads. So like these things have to be like written in a way that doesn't like make them, like complain as I found out the right. hard way. And then eventually like, I just kept being like, can I, can I fact check here? Cause like okay. one of the fact checkers got promoted. And at that point, then it's like, I'm doing this several days a week. I'm more of like someone who's in the newsroom. And from there, uh, I got to like, get to know people who were there. And like, this is a very, very small shop, but like now I could like, sure. you know, like talk to people, um, yeah, yeah. Without like having to like pretend I, I I I wasn't there, and then like eventually uh, got to got to pitch stories, and um, very weirdly, uh, New York Press was also uh, a hotbed of like really ugly reactionary nativist politics uh, because okay. one of the people who ends up like getting his own section in the paper, sure, I don't know this for sure, but like surely. Surely, because he was like helping Russ fund this operation, um, was this guy who's like big in the in the American nativist right circles, Taki Theodorakopoulos. Okay, and like this guy is a straight up anti semite. Like it was very clear from what he wrote. Yeah, um, I re- he. Do you guys remember uh, the movie Black and White that came out in the summer of two thousand? Like Busy Phillips is in it. No, I do not. Okay. Anyway, uh, like, uh, he he just had like a straight up racist take on this movie that he was like happy to put uh, in the paper, like talking about how like he would like refuse to let his nineteen year old son watch this for fear of its like corrupting, you know, between mm. the lines. He's saying black okay. influences, um, and like I just basically like a lot of people in this paper just sort of like pretended that like that's Taki's own section. And it's not really part of the paper because it like had nothing to do with the newsroom culture. Okay. But like, obviously okay. the newsroom culture is fucked up if it allows that sort yeah, of thing to sure, be printed. Sure. And like Taki, uh, was incredibly rich, like richer than I, like this is how rich Taki was. Uh, Taki was rich enough that for something like $600 a week, he would pay someone to mail out a free newspaper to his mailing list of like 200 movers and shakers in oh, New York city. Wow. So like, uh, like, uh, his Royal Highness Prince Pavlos of Greece, uh, yeah. who, who like maintained an upper East side apartment. <laughs> okay. And like people like that, people from like a completely different. Is he just New one of York. those weird old New York money bloodlines or something? No, 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 no. He, um, his, his, his family was in shipping in Greece. And as he likes to tell uh, the story, uh, fled quote unquote communism. Oh, right. Okay. 
So he was. Uh, this was the New York press he was mailing out to these people. No, this was the New York press he was paying. He was paying me an ungodly sum every week under the table <laughs> to mail out to people. Right. This was an oh, hour's dude. worth of work a week, and I got six hundred dollars, <laughs> which a huge sum of money what I at had, that time. What I had yeah. to do was this was in this was um, I was at Target at the time, uh, right. where 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 listeners may be interested to know uh, Betty and I's path crossed. Uh, for yes. the second time, although our third <laughs> connection, counting uh, your aunt. Um, yes. But uh, I would wake up, the paper was printed like Tuesday night and, and went out like first thing Wednesday. I would get up before dawn uh, on on Wednesdays, get on NJ Transit to Penn Station. New York Press is mercifully close to it, as, as, as we said. Uh, I would like stumble in, print out Taki's mailing list on stickies, put a free newspaper, I want to stress, uh, in envelopes, put the label on the envelope until I was out of labels, and okay. like wheel it over to the post office, like pay it up front, and then I would be done. And like every uh, week I would get $600 from this bigot through his very, <laughs> very nice uh, assistant. Uh. That's amazing. This well, guy went on to found... Uh, more than one uh, opinion uh, outlet, but one of the ones he founded employed uh, the white nationalist Richard Spencer. Yes. Wow. So he really went down that path full on, huh? Yeah. So like New York Press, its legacy is decidedly mixed. <laughs> yeah. yeah. This yeah, is yeah. really interesting, Spencer, because I was a huge <laughs> fan of that paper. And I do remember, I mean, was Dan Savage, was that one of the columns in there? He, what was they, um, they had yeah, a really they cool sex Sa- column. They would print Savage Love, yeah. Um, uh, Savage Love was syndicated from from uh, from the Stranger, right? But, but they had uh, a lot. Just, yeah, what the, and Drinky Crow really was all yeah. it took for me. But I liked the. I mean, I do. I also was had um, a little rebellion against the Village Voice. I feel like, uh, but then I remember that it went that the, the that its demise towards the end. It became this like, yeah, it was kind of considered like a right wing paper with. Uh, I don't know. I, I just remember that by the time it ended, that it that it had really kind of it had a tarnished reputation, I guess. And yeah, I, I wasn't and clear what because I don't think I was reading it towards the end, but I was surprised by that. Yeah, like a lot of that stuff, I was I was definitely uh, like like really inclined to explain it away because like how much I loved. Like the way like Andre Slivka wrote, right, and the quir- just the quirkiness of the paper that they would kind of allow anything in. I think, was- yeah, like Andre wrote a restaurant review uh, that like started with the premise of like this food was so like it, it started with the premise that like God it's God himself like takes a protractor and like sticks the point in his uh it like in the point in the map where the restaurant is and uses the other end to scratch his greasy back and it's like who's putting this in restaurant reviews like what the fuck like this is just not something that anyone else is doing like even when it when it really doesn't work and like it it really just like it was one of the first i'll tell you this um it was one of the first times that, like, in particular, you can kind of appreciate that, like, punk rock is a hollow vessel and can be filled with left-wing politics 
yeah. just as easily as if you get filled with right wing politics. Right. Sure. Because the, like the trolling and the attitude and like if you're not careful uh, and particularly like if you're if you're too white, uh, then like this shit can tip over really easily. Like I, I go back to how like, you know. Gavin McGinnis of Vice, uh, like that shit started out from the punk scene in Montreal, as best I understand it. Yeah, and yeah. like, yeah, yeah, that, like, that is not that. Like, that is one of the reasons that, like, we always like had to remember, like, if Nazis show up at your shows, you have to fucking violently get them out. Right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That strange bridge that was there in those times. I think it still does exist in that scene. It's like the. Um, the fallout of allowing the avenue for completely independent thought always, you know, where, where any strange theory, any strange concept, any strange idea that questions anything is supposed to be, you know, accepted and explored to some degree. And, you know, thinking back particularly in, in like nineties punk rock and hardcore nineties, hardcore, especially, um, Uh, in, you know, in and around New York, New Jersey. Uh, and I guess nationally as well, you would see this in like the letters pages of Heart Attack all the time in the columns. Yeah. Um, you know, there would be a constant, uh, like reactant reaction, uh, to, uh, to people's radical politics to the point where like you would constantly, like it, it, it's, it just seems like our, like we died a long time ago and our fate in hell is to constantly like debate like the evils of PC culture. Like, (laughs) like, like this is so like, this happens so fucking much. Yeah. Hard for it. Like from the worst people. And it's all like so stupid and euphemistic and like dehumanizing and licensed um, in in a lot of like extreme music circles or underground music circles. Um, And, you know, we we grow up and so today, and yeah, right. it seems it, it just seems like you know. Uh, friends of mine were telling me I don't really follow this anymore, but like friends of mine were telling me that like there were like uh, prominent people in pop punk who like are really sick of like the woke children today. But like I I just wanted to like just make the point that like you can you can particularly in retrospect, like really see this heritage um, just yes. be like ever present that like this debate had to, to call it a debate is kind of not the best term because this wasn't like a thought out thing. This was just like a gross reaction uh, to someone yeah. who would, who would like express their, their, you know, non-conforming identity or non-conforming sure. politics. So. It's the, uh, this is the perfect spot for a segment in this show we call Mystery Friend. (laughs) So, I got a funny story about you. Okay. That I am going to tell you. And the concept of the game is that you have to tell me which mystery friend told me this story. Okay? Oh, no. So, this person said, the first time I remember talking to Spencer was in the driveway of a punk show on Lewis Street in New Brunswick. I think we were arguing about something, and I was like, who is this little man with the really (laughs) big voice, and why is he telling me that punk isn't supposed to be nice? 
something about a cultural dialectic. He thinks it's stupid that we have to clap when bands finish their songs. <laughs> well, oh. I sure am glad I don't have to hang out with this dude regularly. <laughs> so, this is the story I heard about you and your yeah. vibe in New Brunswick. Do, do you know who this mystery friend is? This would either be uh, Ronan or Fid. Ah, no. You're, you're no, in the right wrong. wheelhouse. You're in the right wheelhouse. Want to take another guess? No, I really would have thought it would be them. And by the way, I want to say they were entirely right. <laughs> I, I'm saying this for the record on the podcast. I was an asshole. Like, particularly, <laughs> particularly at, like, this, this stage in my life when, like, I got, like, really doctrinaire by accident after, like, getting into the refused record. Um, <laughs> like, this is, like, I, this is not refused's yeah. fault. This is entirely my fault. But, like, yes, I took, like, an awful attitude uh, toward New Brunswick punk rock uh, at a time when, like, I just moved to New Brunswick for college. Um, so right, tell, me, right. tell, me, tell me who this was. Because I can this apologize. This is Sue. so this is my ex-girlfriend of five years and like (laughs) dear dear friend yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) it's hilarious and fid is a great guest but fid was probably saying this same shit you know like like fid and ronin at that maybe ronin was a little more positive but you know i mean i heard a lot of things like this coming out of new brunswick in the 90s i don't think you were we're finding ourselves you know um (laughs) I don't think you can find uh, yourself in that. <laughs> no, like still, like that. As soon as you said, that, I was like, no, yeah, that that um, they got me. <laughs> yeah, that, so it's a hundred percent right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Well, like three friends, there is yeah, there is some revisionist history, but I'm glad that this one was correct. <laughs> no, 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 no. They're, they were totally right, and I was totally wrong. Like, there's no, there's no defense of this. <laughs> so. As like an old, you know, punk rocker and now, you know, career reporter for, you know, half your life now, do you, do you have that same kind of like emotional and real visceral response to like the attacks on the press from the president or is it just Jack's total lack of surprise? It's like this. We... My friend Jeff Young, uh, who works for HuffPost, tweeted this and put it and put it really well after some of the attacks on reporters covering the protests. Yeah, it can seem from the outside. No, it can seem from the outside that when uh, reporters talk about attacks on the press, that it just seems like you know another like cartel protecting itself, like a class mm. like closing ranks on its own, uh, you know, tribal interests. And like, sure, I'm sure for, for some people, there is that instinct. It's, it's, it's something of a human one, particularly one under assault. But the right. thing is, is like, there are some people, and I think a lot of people, um, and you can tell from their work, uh, who get into journalism because like they deeply believe that like the public in order for like democracy to be possible, yes. like there have to be some people who specialize in like digging out things that people in power do not want you to know and also communicating it in as plain and as urgent a manner as, as merits, you know, as merited by uh, the, 
the wrongdoing found. And so when looked at it like that, what people who attack the press are doing are attacking a proxy for you. They are telling you that you don't have the right to know something. And like that should offend you. Yes. That should offend you whether like you come from a punk rock background or not. It should offend you because you, you respect yourself. Like you have like the basic dignity to recognize that someone is trying to get you to hate uh, people who do a job that's necessary for you to be free. And then you should yes. ask why they're doing that. So like, yeah, I get angry. I like, I get angry, you know, for, uh, for like as, as tribalist reasons, you know, as, as I can, but like, you know, lurking in the background is that. And like, you know, it, it matters. So. Sure. Yeah. And I mean, the, does the it, founding fathers were aware of this and, and, you know, and. and yeah. And who like write a whole lot about how like they fucking hate like the press that's around them and like the press they get. And like, Yes, like there's a lot of shitty journalism that will always be, and there's a lot of partial journalism that will always be. To be honest, I think partial journalism, like abandoning the pretense of objectivity, is the right move uh, for journalists. It's, I think, the right move in an age where, like, people are accustomed to not trusting you. People are accustomed uh, to asking, and I think validly, like, where you are coming from. Uh, in serving them news and what your like particular agenda might be. And so I think it's just better in that environment, which doesn't seem to be like going away and is through my lifetime only intensified to just be upfront about what you believe and why you're writing what you're writing as well as like you pay the, the tax, uh, that, that, uh, that that imposes, which is like you have to be both transparent and rigorous if you expect people like to take to take you seriously when they don't agree with you. So then does that become the norm? And it's we never go back to that romantic era of the big three NBC, CBS, you know, when we had these people like Dan Rather and Walter Cronkite, who seemed to be completely objective about everything that they were delivering like that's it can never go back to that. I think like light from a dead star. Uh, mainstream journalistic culture will not give up like that dream of going back to that. Well, how do you recommend then, you know, somebody who, you know, from a, you know, a news junkie to even a, you know, a novice person just trying to be informed, like how can you be correctly informed these days? Like, like what are the right avenues to you? to actually get the, the abject truth? I think you want to look for uh, who tells stories from whose perspective. So like, okay. like if I want to read about like criminal justice, you know, an organization uh, like the appeal, um, an organization like the Marshall project, um, they'll do rigorous journalism um, it'll be deeply reported and you'll be able to see that you should always seek out reporting primarily. Um, right. And you'll be able to tell as you, as, as you read, like who is like taking a whole lot of, you know, context uh, from, from other reporters. And that's totally fine by the way. 
uh, provided you properly attribute and who's like the person, you know, who's actually talked to the people they're quoting. And from there, you know, you see, and I'm I'm just going to stick with the criminal justice, you know, perspective, the people they're quoting are people who have come through the criminal justice system or interact with it uh, a whole lot. And I think that way, rather than, so you see like lots of lawyers in particular, lots of defense lawyers, uh, lots of people who've been on the receiving side of, of policing and incarceration. And that can often be uh, a pathway for far less euphemistic uh, and far richer, uh, like deeper reporting, understanding in a particular contextualization of what it is we're talking about because it's being told kind of from the bottom up. Um, I think, and I do a lot of this uh, also like reporting on, uh, the agencies that are basically like the instruments of national security, the Pentagon, the intelligence agencies, the Justice Department. Um, uh, and that's also valuable. But as, as I've learned, like very often, if you just rely on that, you have to like explicitly take a skeptical perspective to your reporting, or it's very easy uh, for the agenda of those agencies, because like they're the ones briefing on the things they want to brief about, uh, to overtake your priorities and what you think uh, the right story is. So as a news consumer, I would recommend uh, people, I would recommend like searching out news sources um, or like examining the news sources they already get for like A, how much original reporting is done here, uh, B, what perspectives are being represented uh, here are they people in power who tell you the way they expect things to go, or are they people out of power who tell you what they endured from power? And then see if the reporting uh, is about uh, people in power, how skeptically is it presented? Right. So the thing that scares me about what you're saying is it's already, you know, a very like nuanced process of what you're almost asking people to do. And I feel like your run of the mill news consumer isn't going to do all that. Um, I don't think they're even going to look deeply enough into these stories, especially these days when people are so accustomed to basically just massaging their own emotional reaction on social media you know, and things like that, Um, you know, it's part of where I think, you know, Trump was almost maybe successful is the idea that like you have to dig so hard and do so much sourcing to be certain that you're being told a well-reported truth that I think there's a small minority of people that are going to do. I would argue with that. That's why that's where my empathy has been lost with his supporters. Is he doesn't take much to uncover the bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> well, I'll put it like this: like my, you know, for 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 now, like my entire adult life, like my, you know, my reader feedback is like overwhelmingly like hate mail. Um, right. But at the same time, like, I, I don't agree, Ben. Like, I, I, like, I've seen lots of readers who engage, you know, even if they're, like, engaging, like, to call me an asshole because I didn't, 
like, you know, thoughtfully present something that I should have like dug harder on. Like, I think people really do engage like that. Um, I've gotten like feedback from people about that. Um, and like, including like feedback, um, you know, like one of the things that like, I like to, you know, tell friends of mine who are also like colleagues of mine who are in this business is just like, I read the way you did that. And like, I fucking loved it. I love the way you presented like this key quote. I love the way, uh, you wrapped it around, uh, this other issue that I hadn't considered. And that like most of us aren't like paying sufficient attention to, and like that makes me want to change, like like sort of tilt the perspective of the way like I'm looking at like something I'm covering now, and like I, I think see. all of that like people yeah it won't be everyone um and you know it probably won't be like evenly distributed across the political spectrum but it is distributed somewhat across the political spectrum like I've had like very smart like scary smart encounters. Uh, with people whose views are like I consider like reactionary, like not right. MAGA reactionary, but like like further right that I'm comfortable with, and sure. like these like I you know I don't necessarily have you know sympathy for what they believe, but I can recognize that like they're not coming to this like just from avarice or stupidity. Like a lot of right. people have yeah. thought themselves into these positions as wrong as I, as I think they are. And I'm going to like write that they are, um, you'll, you'll know it when it's not there. Like when it's, when it's just, you know, yes. pure bigotry, like it's, it's, it's clearly there. Um, but you know, we shouldn't like presume that, uh, you know, to go back to exactly what you were saying that like only the people who agree with us are like smart and engaged people and capable of like reading, uh, a news organization critically. Good. It's nice to hear, actually. Um, and how do you think the, you know, the journalism over the course of the last couple weeks since the George Floyd video was, um, you know, widely seen and the reaction to it, how have you been um, gauging what's been going on the last couple weeks? Do you think uh, it's been covered well and doing doing what it should be doing? I think the on the ground reporting uh, has covered it extremely well that the on the ground reporting, like where you see and not, you know, uh, not necessarily just from actual reporters, from like people with cameras who are recording uh, this mass uprising across the country um, and writing about it like eloquently and, you know, in deep danger to themselves right now. Um, There have been over 100 attacks on journalists over the past week. Uh, I guess week plus. Um, and clearly like the cops are doing this deliberately. Um, what's failed is that it took way too late. Um, I would say not until kind of Wednesday, the third or Thursday, the fourth, um, for like the overall mainstream, uh, media to focus on not violence amongst protesters who are committing property crimes but that what happened was a nationwide police riot in response to a nationwide movement dedicated to eradicating institutional white supremacy within policing. 
And yes. that's to me the story. That's that's what yes. we're seeing again and again and again with an incredibly deep history in the United States of this happening so frequently on yes. on whichever scale. And a lot of us um, and a whole lot of news organizations like showed that even when we have video out of like NYPD cruisers plowing through protesters on Flatbush Avenue in St. Mark's. Yeah. That like somehow the story is not police provoke riot and then use it as opportunity when like they're pulling down masks of, of kids. Like, like I saw like some video, um, like shortly before I got like on the call with, um, with you guys were like, like there was like an, like some young, like pre junior high school kid, um, who was like just like straight up, like, like, like pepper sprayed in her eyes with her family around. Like we saw, you know, a whole lot of that, a whole lot of deliberate, like cruelty for its own sake. Um, yeah. and, and not just for its own sake, but for the sake of preserving police power. Uh, right. in, in cities across America and preserving not just police power, but police impunity. And a whole lot of us in the press did not write that story quickly enough. If they, mm-hmm. if they, if they, if they wrote it at all, it became too often a story about what cops said, like scary protesters are doing. And it, it is, is like a, a failing with, uh, a very rich history and like yeah. deeply disgusting history. Why do you think that from is the though? white overclass? I think because a whole lot of journalists are white people who like come from privileged enough backgrounds where their interactions with the police are and like are friends with only people like this, like interact yes. with, with only people like this in a deliberate way, uh, whose interactions with the police are either like fundamentally like benign or trusting or like ultimately like not life-threatening. Right. So you think these journalists are giving them the benefit of the doubt to the cops? Yes. And, ed- and editors as well. And it is institutionally the easier thing to do. Right. You are is not- any of it fear? How much of it is fear more than giving them the benefit of the doubt? Like, do you think, you know, Trump's campaign against the press and empowering police and, giving them the, you know, like uh, the DEA spying on counter protesters and things like that. Like, are, do you think some journalists are, are being, uh, you know, shook out of, out of reporting it as clearly as they, they think it actually is? I don't think this kind of, uh, this, this, this kind of blindness um, comes from Trump. I think this, Right. is much deeper seated uh, wow. in America. And it's yeah. the reason why, like, people are out protesting. Um, right. And after Trump goes, uh, it's going to keep it's going to still be there. And people are going to have to combat it actively um, within themselves. Self I've like in my 20 years and I'm, I'm, I'm definitely not immune to this, like self-censorship, particularly like on uh, the grounds that you tell yourself, like, am I really being scrupulously fair to the people this article is going to be critical of? Like, that's going to do a whole lot of work in, like, getting you right. to tone down 
uh, the way sure. you write about things. Um, and that eventually will get you to tone down the way you see things and the way you perceive what's in front of you. Hmm. And if you're yeah. not constantly on guard for that, like you're, you're, it's, 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 it's like swimming. Like you're, you're, you're going to drown. Like you're, you're gonna, it's like the water's going to rise before you realize it. Yeah. So, uh, so we, you know, b- based on what we just talked about and there's this long functional institutional uh, bias that's been happening for so long. Uh, wh- what do you think are some, some actual uh, steps, you know, that are reasonable and manageable, you know, and right in front of our faces that, that could be direct changes that can happen right now when, when the, when the, uh, when the country's open to it. Do you mean in terms of journalism? No, I'm actually, I'm talking, I'm sorry. Uh, in terms of policing now, in terms of the structural, you know, you know, even something as simple as the fact that we just watched, you know, um, white armed people literally with, you know, AR 15s, you know, violently, you know, storm state houses. Canceling we're watching Proud Boys, you know, take pictures of cops and, you know, like yeah. you know, these roaming mobs of people. So there's there's this obvious inequity, you know, that hopefully everybody can see with clear eyes now. But I still like how do we attack that? It's it's such a monolith. Like like, how do you actually like on a ground level, a local level, actually start picking away at this system and changing it? I you know we're recording this a couple hours after uh, Minneapolis voted to disband right. its police department. Yes. So, like something that was unthinkable. Uh, I think when that a lot of people would have thought was unthinkable for a very yeah. long time just manifested itself in the city uh, whose officers murdered George Floyd. And, you know, this is not like the end of any struggle. Uh, certainly it won't be in, in, in Minneapolis and definitely not beyond. But I think the horizons of what's possible are, are changing uh, because people are doing what they always do to make those horizons change. They go out and they do the changing. Mm. And like in mass, like the people will decide what the boundaries of the possible are. And that mass is only increased. Like we've seen, um, I'm going to take a line from uh, my friend, Mike Duncan, another uh, ex, another like, uh, punk rock emeritus. He's a, an amazing history podcaster uh, with the Revolutions podcast. Um, okay, as he put it, we saw in it as he put it in a different context. What we saw this week was a crackdown and then a backdown, uh, and that right. happens a lot in in revolutionary circumstances. I don't know if we're in one now, but you know, a friend of mine from punk rock uh, who I went to uh, a protest with last week, uh, who's you know quite a veteran. Of, of like various left wing protest movements, um, for as long as I've known him. It's just like, I've never seen anything like this nationwide simultaneously in, in, in the, in these kind of numbers with these kind of demands. Yeah. Just like this, this isn't something, um, that, uh, you know, we at least have lived through. And that should, I think, inspire a lot of people to say that, 
you know, they're not going to listen to what they're constantly told by people who want them to just go back inside and change minimal things is practical. Um, you know, I'm a, you know, I'm a lifelong New Yorker. Uh, I'm yes. under no illusions about the political power of the NYPD. Uh, it is not an institution, uh, as we're seeing like cop shops around the country that accepts democratic accountability. Right. Uh, it will co-opt it to subvert it. Uh, never forget that, like, you know, de Blasio gets elected with 70% of the vote uh, on an explicit platform of police reform. And it took yeah. about a year uh, for the cops uh, to, to show that they were willing to threaten de Blasio's mayoralty. And accordingly, he decided he did not want that smoke. Right. And, and, and now we've seen him like capitulate to the NYPD, lie to the public about what they saw, uh, at the hands of police. And, you know, this is going to be, this is going to be like a defining and not quick struggle for the city that takes place across years and I think generations. Like, what, what is it? What is it that they did to him? Like, what is it? The police unions? Like, what, what are they really holding over his head that that makes him back away from these things? I mean, to be a New York City mayor at war with the police is not something any mayor like has been willing to do or considers tenable. Uh, it right. re- remember in 1992, uh, shortly before. Uh, the mayoral election uh, in 93, uh, during uh, a point in uh, David Dinkins, the first black mayor of New York's uh, mayoralty, where they are like fighting with the police over a contract, there's a drunken police riot on the steps of City Hall. Uh, it is egged on by Rudy Giuliani who leads a drunken off-duty cop crowd that is hol- that many of whom are holding up racist signs comparing David Dinkins to a washroom attendant uh, and saying that whatever his skin color, Dinkins is yellow-bellied. Uh, they are, like, a year later, that, like, that, like, helped get Giuliani elected. Um, right. And we went through you know, over 20 years of an active uh, campaign to make, like, the respectable, like, bourgeois, uh, you know, so-called, you know, liberal New York City, uh, a city of overwhelming and overwhelmingly unequal wealth, uh, believe that, like, the Giuliani model is what makes a successful city and not anyone who suffered under Giuliani's mayoralty, who told you again and again and again what sort of person this mayor was. Yes. And now the rest of the country is like, oh, my God, what happened to Rudy Giuliani? (laughs) (laughs) And the answer is circumstances. Yeah. Like, this is who who Giuliani has always been. Anyway, I'm ranting. But, like, this (laughs) is... Your city, man, yeah. Like... You can rant about Giuliani as much as you want. I hate that motherfucker. (laughs) (laughs) Like, this is, um, like, woven deeply uh, into the the DNA of 
a whole lot of the political class in New York because like that class is not particularly interested in, nor is it responsive, to, particularly responsive to people who like protest, like institutional police brutality, who protest institutional white supremacy and who protest capitalism. Like yeah. this is not, this is just not what uh, mayors in New York do. And the only way they will ever do it is under massive and sustained public pressure. And right. that kind of public pressure is manifesting right now. And yeah. if it can be sustained, anything is possible. Yeah. Yeah. As you said, what, what happened in Minnesota today is uh, remarkable. You know, I've, I've yeah, I, I, if you told me that that would have happened uh, 30 days ago, I would have told you to go fuck yourself. You're crazy. That'll never happen. So, yeah, yeah. you're right. Maybe it is going down the right path. So you're you're a great talker and debater. I, I could use. Can you give me some good, just quick, solid retorts for the all lives matter crowd? You know, like like what's when you try to do that and someone's like, no, 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 all lives matter or this and that. What what's something quick? that you can just slap somebody with to just be like, no, 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 no. This is the reason that makes zero fucking sense. So I'm not a great talker and I'm a worse debater, but <laughs> I do use Instagram a lot. And right. on Talib Kweli's Instagram, I saw him post, you know, if your grandmother died and someone came up to you and was like, all grandmothers die. You would, you would be like, you're a fucking asshole. Yeah, We're talking about a particular pain that's happening here. And while, yes, all grandmothers die, that's not what's relevant here. It's definitely not what's urgent here. And by you invoking that, you're either telling me that you're a sociopath <laughs> or perhaps you haven't thought about this as much as you should. And if you take maybe 10 seconds to think about it more, we'll have the answer to whether you're a sociopath or not. <laughs> I think that's a good one. <clears throat> so one of my big fears and the, the you know, the thing, um, you know, you kind of alluded to this, this idea that, you know, say for instance, um, X amount of police are, uh, you know, moved to a different uh, form of policing or, or eventually are, uh, out of policing altogether because of what happens in the last 30 days. You know, I worry about some of these people um, just basically becoming the same as these militiamen we see on the streets, you know, people who yeah. have uh, skill with guns and skill with combat who are now on their own and empowered by, you know, um, a current administration that has, you know, been dog whistling them from day one, you know, even during his campaign, kind of empowering this side, you know, I'm really fearful about November. I'm really fearful about the elections and, uh, and the fact that, you know, if it's not a landslide and it's not completely obvious that there's going to be some kind of call to arms to these people. Um, do you think that's possible? And also, what, what kind of uh, tactics or, or, you know, legal precedent could could Trump go ahead and, and start to um, minimize these elections or say that they're incorrect? 
Well, my pre- so a couple things. First, I think you would be crazy not to worry about that. Um, we're seeing on the streets of Washington uh, a whole lot of armed and uh, body-armored men uh, who display no visible police insignia and like don't answer when asked who they work for. Yeah. Um, it took documents to leak to find out or to confirm that tons of them come from the Department of Homeland Security, tons of them come from the Bureau of Prisons, and from a lot of other uh, federal agencies that it turns out have police forces that you didn't know about. Right. Um, so that's that's one. Uh, secondly, so the elections are controlled by the governors. So like Trump's outright power to like cancel an election um, is 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 not is not there. Okay. Um, but just like he tried the last time, like absolutely nothing stops him uh, from saying that the that the election is illegitimate. And yeah. for a lot of people, uh, all it will take is the, the prospect of them losing power uh, to, to buy into that line. Yeah. Uh, Trump operates, I think, like a tribal leader um, of a white tribe in the United States. And there are lots of people who, like, see themselves, it turns out, as either part of that tribe or acquiescent to it. Yes. Um, so, yeah, um, a lot of, if you know, my... I have no idea what's going to happen in November. Uh, if Trump loses, he will be open to a ton of criminal exposure uh, that the fact of his being the president insulates him to, which is a fucked up thing about this country when you think about it. <laughs> yeah, no shit. Like, like exactly the opposite of what you want for impunity. Impunity yeah. operates like for those who, who, who like deserve it the least. Yeah. Um, and like, from whom we can tolerate it the least. Um, if I was in that situation, uh, I would execute a massive dare uh, to like the new milk toast uh, Joe Biden administration and say, I Donald, Don- I Donald John Trump am officially a candidate for the 2024 Republican nomination. Wow. So I would be daring n- newly president elect Biden uh, to prosecute me, prosecute his political opponent. And I'm writing a book about how, uh, among other aspects, the impunity uh, displayed to torture, uh, displayed to warrantless surveillance, uh, displayed to endless war, that the architects of that, the development of that, uh, over the course of the post-9-11 era, helped get us to where we are. And if that impunity happens again, the vistas of what will be normal and possible for the next time a nativist, uh, a white nationalist administration takes power are going to open tremendously. So this, this doesn't even stop this. We should, you shouldn't think for a second that this stops, uh, when, you know, a Democrat, particularly this Democrat. Yeah you know, might win an election. Um, I'm sure, you know, I'm not telling any of your audience anything that they don't already know, but. No, well, so, so say for instance, you know, I'm a person who sees this and I'm not the type of person who likes to cower in fear. So, so even as, um, you know, a lifelong person who's been, you know, uh, anti-gun, 
anti-gun uh, industry, you mm-hmm. know, anti-NRA, like the whole thing, you know, I want to buy a gun because of the things I see. And I, even though I, I feasibly know that I don't know how much it's going to do, I'm not that type of person, I'm not military trained, I, I still have this sense that I need to start beginning to like, protect myself, protect my family, make different things. But it doesn't seem sensible to me. So for someone like me, who's not a reporter, doesn't have some huge soapbox of influence or anything like that, what's something we could do to to put a wrench in what you're talking about? Organize. What we're talking about. Organize. Organize with your coworkers. Organize with your neighbors. Organize with your friends and their networks. And the power, I, I truly believe, like the power of the people when marshaled is unstoppable. Okay. Something will have to stop it. And the only thing that will change a world in which no one listens to the people is, is active organizing. I don't have any kind of like magic bullet or solution like that. But sure. like yeah. you, you see it in so many contexts and we are seeing it like on the streets all around the country. There is power in numbers. There is power in solidarity. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's true. It's like um, if, if say, for instance, these protests that were going on right now never slowed down, uh, only got larger. Um, what's the, you know, at first, you know, these protests are for something very specific. They're for... Uh, you know, putting all four of George Floyd's, you know, uh, killers and accomplices, you know, behind bars for now, uh, you know, arresting the police who killed Breonna Taylor, you know, these very specific things. Uh, w- what's, if we're to hit the streets, keep it even larger, what's the next thing we should be going for? Well, I just want to disagree slightly with that from the protest that I've attended. Um, okay. Those are those are proximate demands. I think this is much larger um, than than the speci- than specific justice for George Floyd and 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 Breonna Taylor. Um, I think it is for at the very least, at the absolute very least, demilitarizing the police and getting. The, I think that's probably like like the 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 kind of fat part of the curve mm-hmm. um, in terms of things that that the protesters like generally believe and express. And in addition, it's for the like world historical and particularly American historical work of getting white supremacy out of policing, which is an essential context for all of policing in America. Um, From, from uh, the fugitive slave act forward. Um, Those are large, those, those are, Historically speaking, like large demands, they are not, from the perspective of justice, large demands. Um, and I think as the protests go and find momentum, uh, political structures, particularly in, in major cities, will face a choice uh, if people force them to face that choice between what can be possible in terms of not just protecting black and brown citizens from police, but 
building forms of accountability and justice and institutionalizing them that are more responsive to actual needs of people in communities. That can happen yes. if this movement keeps going. Yes. It won't happen if it doesn't. I think there's, there's a whole lot of, of ways to make yourself afraid of like, you know, armed fascists. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I don't think those people have seen what's happened over the past, you know, nearly two weeks. I think they're the ones who are afraid. Yeah. I think with mobilization like this, like the like those people see that like, you know, they can't mass like that. Right. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And I, you know, I don't know how ugly this gets. Um, I'm not telling anyone to buy or not buy anything. Um, <laughs> I, I think that there is very often on the left, a fatalistic tendency that shouldn't be there. And a lot of it is born out of like seeing really heartbreaking defeats happen. But those defeats happen when we're not organized, when people don't organize, when people aren't showing solidarity with one another. Power to the people, huh? That's yeah. It. It's I as simple as that. I believe it. As much of an asshole as I was when I was 18 in New Brunswick, punk rock. <laughs> now you clap split. for bands. <laughs> Good for oh, you. What the fuck was I thinking? They're <laughs> all said and done. The refused were kind of dicks, and now you clap for bands. This was not the refused's fault. This was not the refused's fault at all. The la- they were the last show I saw before all this happened, and it was very spiritually uplifting for me. So yeah, this is yeah, not their fault. Still- I was an- I was the asshole. Yeah, they're, they're still really good. <laughs> all right, so I just want to finish with this. Can I read you something that I found? Oh, no. Okay. Dear God. October 9, 2001. Car door falls victim to hit and run bump. Oh, yes. By Spencer Ackerman. I quote, sometimes it doesn't pay to go to work. Throwing her arms up in exasperation after a futile attempt to open the driver's side door of her light blue 1993 Mercury Topaz. Johanna Westcar expressed, a permutation of that statement yesterday. I just parked my car over here, maybe five to one, referring to her spot on Nielsen Street, just past the Lord Sterling School, and now some jackass hit my car. Indeed, concurred police officer Lee Hampton. It appeared another driver backed out of an unconventional angle, striking Westcar's topaz hard enough to leave an indent preventing the door from opening. The officer recommended taking the car to a body shop to ascertain the extent of the damage. Not even the composed stoicism of her friend, Rutgers College Jr., Michelle Denisio, just hitching a ride, Denisio explained, could calm Westcar, who gesticulated wildly in a flare of hair and hands. Why pick on a topaz, she asked, if some vindictive driver wanted to pick on the car of a Rutgers College student? Westcar nominated the Honda Prelude parked a few feet in front. <laughs> so, for a little history, from my end, right, I knew <laughs> Spencer was the metro editor of the Daily Targum and used to write these police blotters 
Speaking of your your attempt at uh, New York Press of, of of finding extra literary panache, <laughs> yes, and and used to just write these ridiculously hilarious and overstated <laughs> and wordy police blotters that confuse the shit out of people. Like like only like eight people in town like got the joke. You know, other people I think you even worked with were like, why is he writing it like that? He's just showing off all these words he knows and like things like that. But I, I, dude, I, you don't even know how long it took me to find this in the Daily Targum archive. Like it was literally maybe a good, an hour of my reporting trying to get ready for this interview. Oh my God. I even went so far as to text three of my really old colleagues <laughs> from there to see if they had hard copies of Targum because I knew I needed to get this police blotter in there. But fuck, oh man, my it's God. so funny, and I'm glad I found one. In the end, what do you hope to accomplish and and leave in this world? What what do you hope to accomplish in the end, and, and how do you want to leave your mark in the world? I probably won't use this in the book, but I've told my friends that uh, I have a kind of dedication page uh, in this book, which is called Reign of Terror and will be out for Viking in the spring of 2021, and I'm shamelessly plugging it here. Um, we, we do intros yeah. and outros for these, so I'm, oh, cool, I'm going cool, to cool, cool. give you some uh, rubbies on there. Thank you. Um, oh, you're always so tender. Um, <laughs> which is, to everyone who got away with it, May this book haunt you. So I, I used to read that um, New York Press a lot. And um, I could tell. I was a big yeah. fan. And it's funny because when he talks about Tab, so George Tab, um, who he talks about quite a bit. Yeah. I always think about, he had a bunch of bands, but like now that I'm a dad and an old fucking punk rocker. <laughs> I always think about if I could ever get back on stage and like George had this band like in the nineties called iron prostate. Oh, and it oh was goodness. all like, it was all like over forties <laughs> dudes. I mean, and great name. That's it was funny. a kick-ass band, dude. It was a yeah? really good band. Yeah. This a friend of mine, this guy, Mike played drums. What was his last name? I can't remember, but um, yeah, they were like, they were a great band. They were just, I mean, they just played around town, you know, but. Um, I was glad you knew something about that because I knew nothing about that. I literally haven't even like heard of that newspaper, you know? Yeah. Let it, me ask you something that never came up in the interview. So why were people like you and Spencer so upset with like the village voice at that time? Because to someone like me, that was like, I thought that was the place to go for information, you know? Well, it was. And it almost had a monopoly. You know, uh, like, they were like just too big. Like you literally for for like if you wanted to get an apartment or a bass player, you only had the voice. Mm. And I think just an element of the voice was pretty cocky at that time. You know, like, okay. Um, their sort of liberal agenda was, I guess, in retrospect, it was probably fine. But as you know, kind of like a fucking. You know, raging reactionary, reactionary punks of the 90s. Yeah, yeah. like I was yeah, like, yeah. anything that was too like forced and in, in my face, right? I fucking rebel against. I'm gonna make my own decisions. <laughs> it was a I'm too gonna hippie. move, I'm gonna move, but not because you told me to. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I, it was fun that I mean, it was fun that they that 
they seem to really dislike the voice and um <laughs> right. and plus they and but they also had really cool content they i mean you could breeze through it was a shorter paper you could blow through it pretty quick and they was it was it a freebie where, where yeah you yeah get it was them? a freebie you it get it freebie? like on the street or whatever like a coffee shop um yeah they had some good they had some good writing but they also just had like i mean yeah like drinky crow was insane right look up that comic it's insane we chased him we chased that guy down uh, to do a music video because of Drinking oh, really? Crow. Yeah, we wanted them uh, to do, I think it was going to, our like fucking Warner Brothers video. Like it would have been like a bucket of money and <laughs> Eleanor like went to his house and he was just fucking too weird. Like, Oh really? Yeah, just yeah, too like, out? He just couldn't, like she couldn't kind of like nail him down yeah, on like, yeah. anything. But, uh, Sometimes you can't reel it in, you know? If yeah, check that. out Drinky Crow though. It's fucking yeah, so I will. bizarre, dude. Yeah, I'll posthumously check all this out. <laughs> I, I was in Central Jersey reading like the Newark Star Ledger, you know. Right. I didn't really, I, I didn't have access to these things at this point. You guys were cool, <laughs> man. I have. I'm looking through now. I had so many random questions that I was going to ask Spencer that we didn't get to. I would did like. Did you like? Did you like the Edward Snowden movie? <laughs> I talked about. I talked about. Uh, you know, the Yankees was the Obama administration an abject failure for liberalism. Uh, you know, Antifa, are they just sitting around making soups or are they actually dangerous? <laughs> I would yeah. like to get him on when things are just a little less intense and, and yeah. go off track, you know, because yeah, like, yeah, yeah, it's interesting sure. that the only other journalist that I know well is also a drummer. Spen- huh. Spencer dropped that he was a drummer, right? Yeah, yeah. So, like, it's interesting, like, it's just funny. Um, There's something there. Listen, you know, drummers have very specific minds. I'm not sure what it is. Right. They're either totally Cro Magnon or just go like the <laughs> other way. It's weird. <laughs> it's true. But yeah, so, you know, you should check out Spencer. He's currently the uh, national security reporter for the Daily Beast. He's at Attackerman on Instagram and Twitter. Um, he posts a lot of you know, very interesting things, but also some fun stuff with just like his daughter fucking with him and a lot of stuff about fantasy and comics and all that. Um, but yeah, I was so happy to have him on and I hope that we, I know I learned something during this interview. I yeah. hope everybody else I did too, it man. It was educational. Um, yeah, sure was. Uh, and was. don't forget we've relaunched Patreon. So yeah, if you want to uh, help us out, go to patreon.com slash going off track. There's a couple options there. Um, we'll be posting some exclusive content. There's some stuff up already. And we might actually be generating some stuff just specifically for Patreon. We've got yeah. a got few some patrons. fun ideas. Yeah, yeah. I got some and, fun ideas for some little pods and stuff. Um, I want to thank Sean and Steph and AA, Eddie, Robert, Eric, Hein, Nathan, and Heath, who are already on board. Um, yeah, check it out. And, you know, if you want to just leave us a tip, if you like a show and you're like, mm, that was yeah. worth a buck, just you can go to Venmo and we're at Off Track there. There's also links on the website for both of these. Uh, yeah, thanks, Ren, David, JS, Gary, Tyler, Carrie Ann, Evan, and Colin, who have Woo! given us Venmo tips. Yeah, well, um, thanks, y'all. Yeah, yeah, it's all great. It's all super helpful. I mean, the Venmo is kind of fun because it always seems like it's an, kind of a response, you know? So, uh mm. They're both great. And you know what? It doesn't cost a dime to support us. Go to iTunes, leave us a good review, subscribe to the podcast there. Um, follow us on Instagram, going off track, and Twitter. 
And let us know, too, because uh, I don't see these spreadsheets, you know, so Brad could just be buying gold <laughs> toilets over there. I don't know what's going oh, on. Oh, yeah, baby. It's Japanese <laughs> toilets. <laughs> you know, I kept thinking that during this whole toilet paper craze. Ah, uh, yes. You know? That's all like, I need. Like, there's so many ways to clean your butt. I didn't really understand. <laughs> like, literally, your toilet is not, even in America, where people don't often have a bidet, your toilet is literally next to just two right. Two functional, uh, you know, water sources. Well, I don't you know just... if, you, if you've ever been to Thailand, but in Thailand, they just put one of those, um, you know, like the kitchen sprayer that you have in the kitchen sink. Right. They put those next to the toilet. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> I, I don't know. It, it makes sense. The only thing that always bothered me, and maybe it would just take some getting accustomed to, but when I was in Japan, I'm like, okay, I know my ass is clean right now, which is great. <laughs> But it's soaking fucking wet. So what's like <laughs> some what's of those? That? Some of those have blowers on them. Some of those Japanese toilets. Yeah, that Super would be nice. Because I was like, okay, because this does add another element. Because right. if if you have that now, you actually need like the equivalent of you need a hand towel rack and you need a butt towel rack. <laughs> oh. You know, like now you're looking at you know a couple extra purchases. Get a drip dry, baby. But in the long run, you know, got time for that. <laughs> Come on, son. And you got got kids. I was just talking to my wife about that today. I'm like, you know what? I used to like smoke a lot more than I do and stuff like that. And a lot of it's because, you know, daddy time is like 30 minutes in the bathroom. (laughs) And then the second you're out of the bathroom, everything is not conducive to that anymore. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Once when the door was closed, it was all good. But like, like the, the just the life is too different now. It's just not. It ain't right. It ain't right. Oh, I yeah. can't do that. Dude, can't I've, do it anymore. My bathroom door, for whatever reason, it has like, it has about a three quarters of an inch gap. And like, my kids are older now, but when they were younger, they would slide everything they could under that door. <laughs> while I was in there on the toilet. <laughs> oh man, I would have built a blocker in like. <laughs> In like 20 seconds. Daddy, daddy. And there's like yeah. fucking stuffed animals coming under there. I know. And you're and, and you're straight up New York City where you're, you're all living on top of each other. too. Yeah, we got one. We got one toilet, baby. Yeah, I got to get out to a farm or something, man. Daddy <laughs> needs his own shed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> daddy needs his own shed. Thing is just going to be filled with wood dust and smoke. And, <laughs> and a drum set. And a drum set, probably yeah, too. Yeah. Oh, uh, rest in peace. I'm losing the peace pocket. My my drum space in Jersey City. Oh no. Which I've had for eight years. Talk about a cave. Almost. <laughs> almost uh, yeah. Talk about a cave. My my original sanctuary in Jersey City. I've been splitting this drum room with another guy for yeah, gotta be eight years plus. I've I've squeezed a lot of bands in there, written record. Mercy Union wrote their record in there. Bottom Feeder wrote all their records in there, squeezing the guys in there. And uh, yeah, it's finally coming to an end. Uh, oh dear. It's a uh, a big loss. Sorry to hear that, Benny. Time yeah. to get the farm for real. I know. It's, it's, it is, man. I got to gotta get a four-wheel drive and just, and just get my space. It's about to happen. It's got to happen. <laughs> But anyway, thanks to all those people who uh, are supporting the show and listening. I do really appreciate it. And Brad's right. I'm so open to feedback and ideas and exchanges. It's really what I want. Um, I think starting, you know, we didn't want to um, 
come up with anything this month to make sure that, uh, you know, people who, you know, basically we wanted to just have June as the setup and July 1st will really be starting the, you know, the full on Patreon promo stuff. Right. Um, so thanks to everyone who's doing that. And, uh, yeah, it'll be able to us to keep doing this show for a while. Yeah, baby. Anything else, Brad? What you got? I'm good to go, man. Mr. Duck. All right. <laughs> we'll see you next week. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.